Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to first and foremost be joined on today's programme by Jason Weston from Ye Old Salutation Inn. Ye Old Salutation Inn is a public house dating from around 1240, which lays claim to being the oldest in Nottingham. Jason, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. It's a real pleasure having you with us. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we begin by just taking that word leader aside for a second and considering that in a little more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? For me, it's someone who guides people. They need to be able to get across what they're doing clearly and concisely someone who can empathise with people and they need to also understand their people's concerns and obviously their fears. They do, don't they? Because I think fundamentally, especially in the context of the here and now as well, in times of crisis and difficulty, the role of a leader is to provide not just sort of inspiration and direction, but also that little bit of reassurance as and when it's needed as well. That's um, the responsibility that falls on that person at the top, isn't it? It's certainly something that's very important at the moment with the current circumstances that we're, we're all going through there's obviously you've got a mixture of different views you know there's those that you know aren't really overly worried and then you've got people that are you know not far off being terrified and they need to be able to obviously speak to all those different people on all the different levels mm-hmm. that to let them understand why they're doing things and how they're doing things Exactly right, because people react to certain circumstances differently, let alone a crisis such as this. So as a leader, of course, it's all about being adaptable and flexible and sort of shifting your approach to meet with those uh, different personalities. And aside from that as well, I think it's fair to say that mental health and well-being has really been at the forefront of our consideration during this period as well, not just because of obviously the fear of um, the virus, but also that social isolation side of things with the lockdown, people of course not being able to go into workspaces in a lot of cases and that sort of social interaction um, that they've been enjoying day to day, maybe even taking for granted pre-pandemic, has essentially uh, been lost for large periods during the last few months. Um, Would you say, Jason, that mental health and well-being is important in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding not just your own, but also that of those around you? Oh, definitely. Um, It's one of the things that people forget about pubs. You know, they automatically think about the alcohol side of it. Mm. But for a lot of people, it is their only point of contact. You know, they live on their own. You know, they don't see anybody. And their visit to a pub is actually their only point of social contact and it is a major part of what basically keeps them sane half the time so obviously when they become isolated and they can't do their usual things you know it creates a rather big trauma for them it does you're absolutely right and thinking about sort of how lockdown has affected your salutation in from a business perspective i of course assume that like all the pubs in the country you would have had to close uh, some months ago just how has it been navigating the last few months since then it was difficult, but the, the way we decided to go forward was once we knew that it was going to be, obviously it wasn't going to be a week that we were shot, it was going to be a long period of time. Um, for my own sanity, and I think the sanity of uh, a few of my members of staff, we decided that the best thing we could do was spend that time renovating the pub. Because obviously when you run a 
a busy pub. There are jobs that you just can't do whilst you're open without actually, mm. you know, taking a financial loss and shutting the venue and, you know, taking that time. So obviously we have that time available. So we just thought, well, you know, it's not a good situation, but let's put a silver lining in there. Let's make the pub look the best we can for when the customers can return. And that way they've got something to look forward to. You know, we made sure that we put it all up on our social media so that people could follow the work we were doing. And we did the big jobs that, like I say, you just don't have the time normally. Mm-hmm. So we made a silver lining out of it. Mm, certainly keeping um, yourself busy and there's some real positivity that's come out of uh, this uh, whole thing uh, for you from that point of view as well. Um, even though it has been sort of a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many, I suppose for those businesses that are going to make it through this, it will bring them closer together because people have really brought out the best in themselves during this time of adversity and it will ultimately galvanise them and leave them better off and stronger for the experience. Um, of course, you've adapted um, really well, it seems, of course, by keeping her concentrated on other issues that needed dealing with. Would you say there's anything, Jason, that you've actually come out of this experience having learned as the leader of a business? Um, well, it's just understanding my staff. It's understanding, you know, the customer. Our customers are generally very loyal anyway. But to see sort of like, you know, the response we've had every time we've put something up on social media, the fact that for some people, they needed that contact. They needed, you know, to feel like in touch with what was happening at a venue that they go to and they enjoy and you know that I think that helped them to not feel quite so isolated because it was they were still in touch with mm. what was going off in the world so you know it, more than loyalty you know the the amount of sort of like heartfelt um, comments and things that we've received and as I say the support it's just been amazing and um, thinking about what we sort of touched on earlier, the fact that it's fallen on the shoulders of business leaders to sort of provide direction and reassurance for employees and those around them. It is, of course, natural as an employee in a business to sort of look up that hierarchical ladder in search of that direction. But when you're the one almost at the top of the tree that's running the business, when you need that little bit of inspiration for yourself, where is it that you tend to look to for that? Um. <laughs> Uh, I tend to sort of uh, go towards music. <laughs> I listen to music and it takes my mind off things and then it helps me to quite see the picture a bit clearer. Um, but, you know, obviously I've been following what's been going off on the media and, you know, keeping a track on the government websites and things as to when things are happening, how they're supposed to happen. So, you know, it's it's been difficult. There's been times when I felt like, literally losing my mind but you know it's a case of you've got people that do need your support that do need to know that you're in control Mm. so you know it's a case of just taking myself away every now and again having a bit of me time and you know just pressing the reset button which is the only thing you can really do um you know we don't have a big um organization that is there obviously if I was a, a manager for one of the bigger pub companies you've got you know people that are higher up than you but uh, you know when it came to knowing the legislation and everything that was coming out that we had to you know adhere to for the safety of ourselves and our customers 
it was a case of it was me sat there reading the reports, mm. you know, so that I could find the clarity as to what exactly I needed to do. And it has been hard. You know, there have been times when I felt like I'm just losing it. But I've had a good team behind me. And amazingly enough, it's a case of as much as they look to me for support, you know, they have also been my support network. You know, when they've mm. noticed I'm struggling or whatever, you know, even if it's just been, I'll make you a cup of tea. You know, it's it's been there. So, you know, as much as people are looking for, you know, the guidance, they also realise that sometimes you need a little bit of help yourself. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, as even leaders, we're not completely infallible. We are always going to need a little bit of help and support here and there for sure. And actually thinking about that, um, if you had to give some advice, Jason, to a person who was maybe of the younger generation and about to step into a leadership role in a business for the first time, based upon the experience that you've had, not just of this pandemic, but also running businesses beforehand, what advice would you give them? Listen. Basically, it's as, it's as simple as that. Listen to your staff, you know, um, talk to them, find out what what their issues are, who they are. You know, the more that you listen, the more you learn about that person. And then obviously that allows you to then be able to give them the help. So they just need to be a good listener. You can't just run a business with an iron fist. You know, you can't lead with an iron fist. You need to stop and take in into account, you know, the people that work for you or below you and, you know, understand what they're trying to say to you. And, you know, obviously if you listen as well, if you are saying something, it's not getting across. Um, If you're listening, you can understand that they're not following what you're saying. You know, I mean, uh, as a perfect example, um, within the pub trade, they uh, have this thing called the perfect pour, which most companies go on about all the time you know they'll send reps in to show you how to do the perfect pour of their product but they don't explain why it's the perfect pour they don't go into the actual science behind it and it's one of the things that i always show my staff you know i show them the difference between the products if you don't pour it correctly and that kind of sums it up it's a case of making sure people understand why you know taking that time to listen and understand the you know, they might be confused. It might make perfect sense to you as to why you're doing something, but they might not have that same understanding. So if you listen to them, then obviously you can um, adjust and make sure that they do understand why you're doing something. And I think if they've got that understanding, obviously that makes them better. So the only advice I'd really give is listen. And thinking now about the uh, the future, Jason, as we adjust to the new normal that everybody's talking about and the impact that that is going to have on society and business across the country, um, what do you envision for yourself and for ye old salutation in over the course of the next year? And what do you really hope to achieve from a business point of view? The main thing we really want to do is obviously keep the doors open. We want to keep the lights on. We want to keep you know people being in here, but we've got to do it safely you know the the safety of the customers and the staff uh, has got to be paramount and you know i think that's got to go through every single industry it's got to go through you know the government and everything they've got to understand that as much as the financial drive can be there we have got to look at the safety of the, of the nation obviously that you know you have to take into consideration the financial thing because if you don't you just end up you know you, you've um, lost the plot altogether and you know everything falls apart but 
you know, people want to know that when, especially for us, when they come to our venue, they want to know we're taking all the precautions. They want to know that it's safe for them to come in. You know, so we want to move forward. Hopefully we want to get back to as close to the old normal as we can. We want to do it safely. And as long as we can cover our overheads, you know, and, you know, profits are a case of, I'd rather not make a profit and keep everyone safe. And, you know, when we finally do turn that corner and we finally, you know, whether it's a, a cure or whatever, it, however we get out of this um, situation, um, I know that if we've made sure we've kept people safe, they will keep coming back. And, you know, the financial part will then come. But what people need to know, you know, what main concern for people is at the moment, they want to be confident that you are keeping them safe, especially in a, you know, a pub setting, because obviously when people start drinking, their inhibitions drop, they need to know that somebody's there looking out for them, making sure that they are being, you know, safe and careful. And I think that's the main thing. So the main thing for us is obviously staying open and the care of our customers and staff. Certainly going to be an interesting uh, few months ahead, Jason. And um, it is an uncertain time because we're not entirely sure which way the uh, the pandemic is uh, certainly going to go, particularly during the winter. And I actually think it would be fantastic to have you back on the show with us at some point in future just to see how things are getting on. We can then assess just exactly at what point we're at as a country. Um, and also we can see just how things at the business are sort of ticking along um, as well along the way. Yeah, that'd be a pleasure. I'd love to come back on. I think it'd be fantastic, Jason. It's been really informative having you uh, come onto the programme to discuss some of these issues with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak in future, do continue to take care and stay safe. And let's keep our fingers crossed that it's all going to be upward from here. Yeah, that's what we do. Like I say, as long as everyone stays safe and stays sensible, we'll get through this. Absolutely right. And for those tuning in, do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves, even with lockdown restrictions continuing to lift, because it does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and ultimately saving lives. I was speaking on today's programme to Jason Weston of Ye Old Salutation Inn in Nottingham. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and also a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Um, During his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system, we're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something 
took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.